Welcome to the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast, brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and the Crop Tech Show, and hosted by me, Alice Dyer. Since the Yield Enhancement Network was established by ADAS 10 years ago, it has recorded multiple crop wild records, droughts, floods, and most recently, a fertiliser crisis. But all of these events have helped the network to gather important information on how farmers can maximise crop production on their land. In this episode, we're going to hear from two farmers who have topped the charts with their crop yields during harvest 2022 and hear all the tips and tricks from the two very different farming systems. But first, I'm very pleased to have ADAS's Dr Sarah Kendall here with me to hear more about key learnings from Yen over the last decade. So, Sarah, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, so I just wanted to start really with, you know, a bit of background on the yen. Um, why was it started? So we initiated the yen back in 2012. And really, that was on the back of a then HGCA funded report investigating the yield plateau and also a successful London Olympic Games. And the yen has been supported and funded almost entirely by the industry itself through the efforts of farmers and their advisors. And also, really importantly, is the sponsorship from the support industry and also the levies that have contributed to um, enabling the yen to be initiated and to carry on. And it's involved lots of of work from um, scientists that aid us to organize the reports, collate the data and and really try and use the data to create the most informative conclusions. And when we set up the yen, it was it had this aim of trying to foster and energize a new culture of yield enhancing innovation in the arable industry. So we were looking to identify and support innovative arable farmers and to really create an environment in which we could all share information and further our understanding together. And I think having just celebrated our 10th anniversary of the Yen, when we reflect over the community that has been created, I think we have largely been successful in achieving that original aim, which is is really great. But in terms of the network and how has it developed, um, when it was initiated, the original focus was on wheat and the network has now expanded to include oilseed rape, peas, beans and linseed to name a few crops. So we've, we've kind of moved out into different crop species And not only that, we've also created new networks focusing specifically on crop nutrition, which is yen nutrition, and carbon emissions, which is yen zero. But I think one of the big successes is that we've now accumulated more than 5,000 yields and have over 1 million explanatory um, data points to go with those. So we think that this puts the yen in a unique position to analyse the complexities of 
how to make progress towards the urgent twin challenges that we've got as an industry of raising farm productivity, but also ensuring its sustainability. 10 years on, it's obviously a great success, not only with, you know, expanding into all the other crops that you've um, just mentioned, but yens have also been initiated in Canada and North America as well as a result. Um, And you said just then about all the data that you've accumulated over the last 10 years. Obviously, that's an awful lot of data. um, But what would you say are some of the kind of key learnings that you've got from Yen that are very kind of practical approaches that can be adopted on farm? Yeah, so I mean, the the data is is really valuable. And obviously, we've able to accumulate all that data because we've worked with farmers and agronomists that have been willing to share their data and the benefit of of that sharing is that they've they've been able to benchmark their performance but in terms of the data itself um through funding from AHDB and other sponsors we've been able to interrogate the data in more detail which has allowed us to determine factors that are associated with high yields. And I think one of the things that this has really highlighted is the importance of what we call the farm factor. So we can look at the impact of the season and the soil and other factors that you maybe would think explain a lot of the variation in yield but actually there is a significant proportion of the variation that's attributed to this farm factor. And you might think, well, what, what does that really mean? And I think what we kind of describe that is, is, is the decisions that the farmer makes, the attention to detail. So really putting a lot of effort into carefully monitoring and managing the crops and that being kind of important when you when you want to target high yields. And at the recent Yen conference, we presented a, an idiotype um, for growing a 15 tonne per hectare crop of winter wheat. And this really builds on the basis of an 11 tonne per hectare crop, which is presented in the HDB Wheat Growth Guide. And studying high yielding crops in the Yen has allowed us to conclude that High yields are achieved in crops that have large biomass and large and tall shoots. So thinking carefully about how you generate um, a high number of tillers, but also retain those tillers is important. And these are crops that are carefully managed. So obviously, if you're generating a lot of biomass and they're tall, they do need appropriate management to go with that. And I think another real interesting outcome from the yen and the analysis of the data has been just highlighting the number of crops that show several deficiencies in um, multiple nutrients and that there can be real value from analyzing nutrient concentrations in the grain and so this is something that all farms can do it's simple to sample your grain and send it off for an analysis with the labs but it can give an insight into whether your nutrition strategy is successful or not if you build up a picture over a number of years. Yeah, okay. We're going to get on to nutrition a little bit later. Um, But there was a time when yen was perhaps, you know, a bit misunderstood and that some farmers thought it was kind of all about just 
piling on as much product as possible and getting as much out as possible, but that's obviously not the case. Um, But what have you found in terms of, you know, kind of input versus output and also the effect that that might have on the carbon footprint of a crop? Yeah, so I think whilst we have observed positive associations between the use of some inputs and yield, we do have to be cautious about interpreting this as cause and effect due to the nature of our analysis. So we see significant positive associations between the number of PGR applications and the number of fungicide applications with yield. And, you know, that that links back to what I've just said in terms of many of these high yielding crops are, are large crops of lots of biomass. So they do need to be carefully managed. But we don't see significant relationships with the number of herbicide or insecticide applications. And if we think about nitrogen, whilst there is a positive association of nitrogen rate with yield, this effect is actually much weaker than the relationship with the number of N applications. So, you know, this isn't just about applying high inputs and not managing those decisions carefully. I think the results help to highlight the importance, again, of the farm factor and the attention to detail approach. And when we look at some of these high performing crops that we've been able to analyse in the yen, these are generally much more efficient in terms of nitrogen use efficiency than the average yielding crop. And when we look at that in terms of the impact um, from a carbon footprint perspective, these crops can consequently result in lower emissions on a per tonne basis. But I think that the reality is is that high yielding crops are not achieved through a huge expense on seeds, fertilisers and sprays. It's much more about that intensive appreciation of and, and the attention to the crop's needs. So thinking about using frequent treatments so that the crop really experiences a minimum of setbacks is important. All yen entrants are told their maximum theoretical potential yield. Um, But this year, for the first time, many farms actually managed to exceed their potentials. Um, So, for example, I think it was Dyson Farming uh, that achieved 129% of their spring barley crop yield. What was going on there? Yeah, so we we did see more crops exceeding their estimated potential yields in the 2022 season. And so when we talk about potential yield, that is essentially a reflection of the resources available to the crop, so light and water, and the crop's ability to convert these resources to biomass. And we ask farms to tell us about their soil, so its texture, its depth, the underlying rock and the level of stoniness. And that information helps us to estimate the amount of water that the soil provides. So accurate estimations are important for accurate potential yields. But because 2022 was so dry, many more of our potential yields were water limited rather than light limited. So where we've seen crop yields exceeding their potential yields, it's either because some of the farmers may be underestimating the performance of their soil or that our model underestimates access to water 
or water use by the crop. But I think I, either way, what it really highlights is the importance and the value of understanding how deep crop roots go and therefore the water that they have access to. And that's something that we would really like to try and explore more um, in the future in terms of how we how we measure rooting systems better within the N and, and have better information to inform that potential yield. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And then finally, um, we're experiencing particularly high fertiliser prices this season. Um, would you say there are any learnings that growers could take from your results last season into this season to maybe help them, you know, maximise their yields this season? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, the increase in fertiliser prices, whilst it, it's not beneficial necessarily from an economic perspective for farms, um, one thing that has been a really positive outcome of that is is this real surge in interest in how can we be more efficient with the fertiliser that we're applying and um, and trying to make the kind of biggest impact from perhaps applying um, lower rates. And I think one thing that the yen has highlighted, um, and I've already mentioned yen nutrition, is is the value of, of measuring the protein levels and understanding whether farms are getting nitrogen rates um, right or not and potentially looking at the scope to make reductions but i think what's what's important is to build on what i what i said about nitrogen rates you know there there is a lot more that goes into achieving high yields than simply applying high rates of fertilizer so we know that modest reductions in nitrogen rates, so say 50 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare, will only really have a small impact on yield. So we've estimated that to be around 0.4 tonnes per hectare. So I think growers obviously need to be calculating their own break-even ratio based on the price that they've bought fertiliser at and what they will aim to sell their wheat or whatever for. And so then be able to um, do their calculations and work out how they should modify their rates to, to basically be the most profitable decision. But I think it's, you know, it's about being confident that making those cutbacks isn't going to have hugely significant impacts on yield. And there's obviously the benefits in terms of the reductions in emissions as well from from that but i think there's a lot to learn as an industry how how we can go about trying to minimize the impact on yield of applying less fertilizer yeah i think it's also encouraged a lot of farmers to carry out their own trials as well this year or last year no and i mean that's something that we've obviously always really supported within the yen and we had a project called yen yield testing that supported groups of farmers testing ideas that have come out of the yen on on their own farms and working as groups to try and share the results and obviously um understand more about about the implications of that so i think anything that can promote on-farm experimentation is is really positive and getting growers to actually see what works for them is, is important. 
So now to hear from the first of our farmers today. Oilseed rape has certainly pushed some of us to our limits in the last few seasons, but in 2022, some crops did outstandingly well, notably Oxfordshire farmer David Parsmores, which yielded close to seven tonnes a hectare and won gold in the Oilseed Best Percent of Potential Yield Yen Award. And we're going to find out exactly how he did that. So David, would you mind just starting with telling us a bit about you and your farm and your farming system? Yes, um, yes I farm in the um, Chilterns uh, area of Outstanding Natural Beauty in Oxfordshire um, on a sort of mixture of soils, but mostly over chalk, some over gravel and quite shallow grade three soils. Um, and we're a mixed farm and um, our sort of cattle and sheep for the pedigree, limousine, suckler herd and um, commercial breeding flock of ewes, and they are um, fully kept on arable ground. So the whole farm is essentially croppable, but we have a rotational grass um, system of three-year grass lays um, rotated around our arable farm that we've been doing now, well, since the late 1950s. Um, Before then, it was a dairy farm, so it's sort of a farm that's always had a good proportion of livestock in it, you know, in in the rotation. So you've been doing that before it's all come back into fashion again? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of, if you go back to the sort of 60s and 70s and how we had to farm, by the 80s and 90s it sort of looked old-fashioned and you were behind the curve and now people come around the farm and go, wow, it looks amazing, your crops look really well and you haven't got any black grass and sort of, how do you do it? Well, without really changing anything, so. Oh no, that's brilliant. And so you won uh, gold in last season's yen for best percentage of potential oilseed yield and you achieved 96% of seven tonnes a hectare, which is quite something. Um, so I'm interested to hear a bit more about your oilseed rate system. Um, I guess a good place to start would be variety. How do you go about picking variety and what variety did you grow in this case? Um, the variety we grew for this crop was campus, conventional one, and we're now on about, about our eighth or ninth year of growing it. Um, one of the major reasons we grow, we're growing for seed, but it's sort of, um, it, it's done us very well. We, we've had even better yields than, than this. It's, in the end, with the hot, dry July we had, we were slightly disappointed and, and, and were hoping for more, but... Um, yeah, it's a speedy variety, gets out the ground. We're late drillers to avoid um, cow, well, to reduce cabbage stem flea beetle pressure in the autumn. Um, and it's a variety that's done us really well, so I'm reluctant to change. You know, it's sort of, at those yields, you sort of, why change? So, yeah. um, yes, I, I think we're in our eighth year of growing it now. Okay. And do you, do you only grow conventional varieties or do you grow any hybrids on the farm as well? Um, no, we only grow conventional varieties so and this year we're all campus again okay and what kind of area of oilseed rape do you normally grow on the farm um about 70 to 80 acres yeah so about 30 hectares yeah and then on to establishment techniques um this might be the big one have you had issues in the past with flea beetle and what what is your establishment technique um if you go back 10 15 years we were um covering the field with a lot of muck, ploughing and pressing it, planting and getting very good results. Um, but what we've found 
what we're beginning to find with um, flea beetle pressure and dry seed beds, it, it was the, the risk of failure was was increasing. Um, and the last few years, we've gone down to strip um, tillage. This particular crop was planted with a Claydon drill, just straight into stubble, um, and we try and leave the stubble quite long. Um, and it seems to work. We've done it for several years now and had very good crops. Our crop in the, that's um, in the ground at the moment looks absolutely, you know, full of potential. Um, I can't, don't quite understand why long stubble makes such a difference to the, the flea beetle pressure because every way you get a bare patch, the crop is clear. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it looks like it's a factor. And the other big thing we're doing, well, two things we're doing is um, we're putting digestate on the stubble pre-drilling um, and not intending to plant until the, the earliest we'll go is the 1st of September. And what we've been doing the last few years is waiting until the 1st of September and then drilling before rain. And invariably, it does turn up. So I'm not worried if it's 10th of September, 15th of September. Um, the last two years, we've been around the 8th or 9th and... Yes, they look absolute pitch of the crops and relatively low um, larvae pressure now from flea beetle in the autumn. So, um, yeah, we, we will not drill early. Yeah, I think there's been a few crops that have suffered at the moment with the frost and flea beetle larvae. So it's good to hear that there's some nice looking crops out there. Yes, I think there's, there's a variety. What would be interesting to see is how it, how it varies to drilling date. One thing we are finding we've, we've got a very low intensity rate growing so for example most of our fields have only grown one crop uh, this crop that won the competition last year was only the second ever crop in that field um, so it, it's not rape sick ground and also with a lot of livestock you know we grow good crops and it just seems to be rooting well obviously with the high organic matter from lots of grass lays and muck and things like that um, it's obviously sourcing nutrients moisture um rooting much better than we sort of think it would be in a in a in a, in a you know in a more conventional sort of a rotation yeah so how wide is your rotation how how many years would you grow all seed rate um we've got fields we've still never grown all seed rate okay. on. <laughs> um, we haven't got any fields we've grown more than two crops on uh, this was the second crop and um, we're sort of looking at yeah 10 years or more, 10 to 15 years. People think, you know, that's quite quite excessive. It probably is a bit excessive. But when you've got a lot of livestock in your rotation on our farm, we're not looking for break crops. We're sort of we're putting a certain percentage of grass in every year and then three years later, that's coming out for arable cropping. Um, so we're in an unusual position of not, you know, of this sort of not in this wheat break, wheat breaks or wheat barley breaks sort of cycle, um, which is sort of, no root crops or vegetable cropping in this area is, 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 is where most people sort of ended up. So, um, you know, we've got soils in, in just, you know, generations of mixed farming, just in lovely conditions that, that, that take advantage of modern genetics and fungicides and stuff. So we're getting you know, good yields across the broad board. Yeah, excellent. And in terms of inputs, what, what kind of strategy do you adopt with your oilseed rate? Um, on herbicides, nothing unusual. We've got a very low wheat burden because of the rotation and because we've grown very low oilseed rate, the sort of more common oilseed rate 
weeds we don't have. Um, fungicides, we go to a fairly standard um, sort of NIAB regime um, of one in the autumn and two in the spring. And nitrogen, we're around 180 to 200 kilos of the N um, as urea. So not, nothing unusual. I think it's one of the key learnings of, of the YEM project is chucking money and inputs at it doesn't necessarily buy you yield. The higher yielding crops with their seals or rapeseed aren't really getting any more inputs than, than the lower yielding ones. So it's sort of, you know, I think that's a big learning from the whole project. Yeah, that's one thing Sarah is saying was that um, particularly with things like nitrogen, it's more attention to detail and a little and often approach um, that sees the greatest successes rather than, you know, quantity. Yes, and it, it, yeah, it's real, yeah, attention to detail, soils in good condition, people are sort of just, you know, um, I know Daniel Kindred, who, who's been involved in the ADES, he, he said the thousands of decisions you make every year, he said you don't realise how many there are, and some people just sort of getting them right most of the time. Um, it, it's not spending, it's not about spending more money, it's about how good condition your soil is in, you know, when you choose to plant things, all those, those sort of interactions, number of nitrogen um, applications, yeah, it's just that sort of, almost sort of unmeasurable sort of um, metrics. Yeah, yeah, is that what they call the farm factor? Yeah, which is, uh, I think about a quarter or a third of their, their yield is, is their farm farm factor, which is what um, I find particularly interesting. It is a measure of how you're running your farm as a whole business and your cropping and your rotation, not not the individual inputs to a crop. And based on, um, just thinking back to inputs um, and, you know, the price of things at the moment, um, are you, did you last season make any changes at all to your uh, nutrition strategy or are you maybe thinking about doing it this season? And if so, what? No, ab- absolutely none. We will do what, we're not big spenders on, on, on nitrogen or um, other inputs or herbicides. Um, we're getting very good margins so I'm, I'm not going to upset it and you know the markets are so volatile I've got no idea what what rapeseed can be worth you know the crop in the ground might not be marketed for a year it's it's um very lucky to take these short-term decisions um you know and the margins are in these crops are good so looking after those yeah I'm, I'm reluctant to trim things back very much yeah fair enough and we just mentioned the farm factor. What would you say that your farm factor is? What do you think that you're doing that kind of makes a real difference to your yields? Or do you think it's maybe like a bit of an accumulation of everything? Or um, I'd say a bit of everything, but in particular on our farm, which isn't very special, you know, that crop last year was grown on gravel, grade three gravel. It's, it's the whole rotation of the farm and the long-term impact of a, of livestock on the farm and long term you know is generations of just regular grass lays cattle and sheep stubble turnips all these sort of you know um sort of traditional practices that, that accumulate good soil and good practice and low wheat persons you know they're sort of they're not really measurable but you can see see the effect after a long time and do you ever integrate the livestock like fully into the arable crops, so try grazing or anything like that. Um, no, not 
but, but they're, they're fully integrated in that you know they're on ground that in three or four years you know today they're on ground that will be in arable cropping in three or four years time and was in arable cropping three or four years ago so they're fully kept on arable ground and um, things like uh sort of grazing wheat they're sort of more you know, sheep and spring tinkering at the edges you know People think they're going back to the old days. That was done in the 19... You know, my father and grandfather would have done that because if you go back to the 50s and 60s, you have weeds that grew about, you know, five, six foot tall, were prone to lodging, disease, and you couldn't control those things in those days. You didn't have the growth, plant growth regulators you've got now or the, the um, fungicides. So grazing in the, you know, forward crops in the spring were, were in, you know, was an important part of the farming process. Now you've got shorter crops of much higher a harvest index you've got fungicides to control things you've probably got i don't know i imagine better disease resistance some of the plants so unless your crops are really forward it's sort of you know, it's not something we're doing and i'm not really sure it's going to improve, improve yield yeah no especially when you're getting yields like that as well um and i know a few yen members um dabble a bit in biostimulants and things like that um i just wondered if you'd if you use anything um like that or if you kind of tried any or had any success um yeah we've done a couple of trials we did one off our own back a few years ago and then we also got involved in um the crop momentum um yield monitoring uh, sort of uh trials with yen and i cannot find any response out of them so yeah we don't use them so um at the, at the moment I, I haven't been convinced yeah I guess if your soils are in really good condition already, that's probably giving the crop pretty much what it needs. Yeah, I, I know we had we did a trial with one, one, one company and they said, oh, this is this, this do wonders and stuff like that. And then it came out about 14 times a hectare with no response from, from the edge input. And he said, oh, well, that's because you're, you know, you've got good crops. I remain to be convinced at the moment by, by the benefit of them. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and then when it comes to... Um, being a member of the yen um, and, you know, receiving your results at the end of the season. How have you found, um, you know, getting those results, interpreting them and then, um, you know, kind of delivering value on your farm? Um, yeah, it's, I find it sort of fascinating. It's almost like a sort of school report of your, your year's work. Um, and, you know, it's, it's got, I don't know, I don't know. 50 60 100 different different sort of measurements in it and and the great thing is we don't really know at the moment some of you know some of them whether they're important or not um what it has to it done it sort of gives you a measurement of how many seeds um for example if obviously rape you're growing per square meter and how you can adjust that and particularly wheat um to get 15 ton a hectare you need 30,000 grains a square meter, and it's completely changed the way we sort of look at a rate, uh, say a field of wheat or a field of rape, um, which is quite difficult to do that on your on your own. Um, and then also important some key nutrients, like, for example, magnesium and oilseed rape, we've sort of really um, adjusted our focus on. Um, There's a brilliant graph at the Yen conference of um, the, I think it was in the, in the grain, the the magnesium concentration in the grain of um, crops that yielded over five ton a hectare and those that yielded below four ton a hectare and there's a quite a startling difference in it's sort of you know yen it's got now so many results you know crops over 10 years 
scheme to pull these things out that you don't just find in small scale trials or individual fields. So yeah, we're you know really going to learn and focus as time goes on. You know, some key metrics from it. And for any listeners that are considering maybe entering the yen, but are maybe a bit nervous or a bit unsure, what would your advice be to them? Um, get involved. I, 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 I joined up, I don't know, six, seven years ago, just out of intrigue. There's this big project going on. Um, there's some pretty good growers and, and, and scientists involved in it. And was I missing out? And also, you know, um, with regard to yield potential, which sort of relates to, for example, your soil type, weather, where you are, how was I doing? Um, and, yeah, it, it, it's given me much more than I, you know, I just sort of went out and put a field in just out of interest. Um, it's, it's not, you know, the, the competition element's great and it shows, you know, encourages some people to push the boundaries and what, what you can do, but it's not it's not really about that. It's, it's more learning. You know, what you learn about your individual crops is, is absolutely fascinating and, and changes how you, you look at them in the future. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's yeah, I, 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 I'd recommend anyone, you know, to get involved. And now moving on to cereals. Last harvest, the UK trumped New Zealand yet again in its annual battle for the highest yielding cereal crops after Lincolnshire farmer Tim Lammyman smashed the charts with a 17.96 tonnes per hectare wheat crop and a 16.2 tonnes per hectare crop of winter barley. I joined Tim and some of the team that helped him to achieve the world records on his farm in the lovely Lincolnshire Wolds. Tim, first, would you mind just um, introducing yourself, where you farm, what sort of soils you're farming on and things like that? Tim Wyman at Whirlaby. Um, the soils we harm are grade two chalky wild soils. Uh, we're farming wheat, barley, or seed rape uh, mainly, a little bit of maize and some spring barley. Uh, yeah, David Robinson, uh, Head of Knowledge Exchange at Frontier Agriculture. Um, I became part of this team because I've spent my life in trials and it was experimental and I like the idea of experimental and it's been really exciting to be involved in it. Um, and Tim, you managed to break not one but two world records last harvest, congratulations. Thank you. Um, so the two varieties that you are growing were Champion and Tardis, so just to start with, how do you go about selecting your varieties? Have you grown these before? Um, so yes, yeah, starting the in the in the trial site, going around the trial sites um, or the data that's sent through, uh, and I look at unusual things like grain sets, um, canopy height, uh, the leaf formation on them, and all sorts of things that other people don't look at. Um, so trying to find the right hectolitre weight, thousand grain weight with the light light interception with the leaf angles are sort of things I'm looking at in there so it gives me an idea of seed rates and you know some some varieties throw a smaller flag leaf and some varieties throw a bigger flag leaf so it's all sort of bits of things that people probably wouldn't normally look at in a variety. Uh, Standing power is a big factor as well the weaker the standing power you've got to be very careful with growth regulation that sort of program so try and pick up every little bit of the factors that most people aren't looking at. And then just briefly um, on crop establishment, what was your cultivation strategy and where did these crops sit within the rotation? So 
So no matter whether it's wheat, barley or oilseed rape, our main strategy is intensive minimum tillage. So we're working at between 10 and 15 centimetres on the primary cultivation, uh, mainly with our homemade um, farm press, which is Willoughby Flatleaf Press, we call it, Spalding Tines and Discs, with an Andrew Guest uh, roller on the back, 600 millish, followed by Vidastat Carrier and then Vidastat Rapid Drill, which is um, same system, for the last 25 years we've just gone from four to six meters in the last 25 years so everything's been pretty similar over the last 25 years uh, in cultivation strategies perfect and when were these crops drilled so the winter barley was drilled on the 26th of september and the winter wheat was drilled on the 24th of september and how does that compare to sort of how your normal drilling date if it wasn't kind of a, a world record attempt so first wheat we would normally try and drill them on the better land that hasn't got black grass between the 10th and the 30th of september uh winter barley we've always tended to drill later so um those sort of fourth fifth cereal sites that we're doing with winter barley for seed would be normally 14th to 25th of october which isn't the highest yielding time and it was thank you to david um the suggestion of pushing it earlier with it not being the back of winter wheat this this year that helped us with the winter barley okay great and then you said earlier about um after drilling the first thing you look to do is build root mass how do you do that so building root mass is for me all about producing cytokinin growth in the plant uh, and that'd be an application of a, a delta k type product which is nh2 stabilized but it's basically a nutritional type product we're using very very small rates of actual nitrogen in there so there's only just under half a kilo of nitrogen in there uh, and it what it happens is when the plant absorbs it because it goes into the plant so much easier it produces cytokinin growth in there so if you use an ordinary type of nitrogen it's 12 times more inefficient so it takes 12 times more energy and you get oxygen growth rather than cytokinin growth which is leggy, leggy growth with hardly any roots and the cytokinin growth is balancing this up with um, fibrous root mass, shorter stems, shorter internodes and better tillers. So that type of product two or three times into the program will help build up the strength of the root structure and the early foundations of the, of the plant. And is that something you use across the board in all your... Uh, we use it in wheat, barley and oilseed. Obviously in oilseed grape you're talking about branching more than you are tillering. But um, yeah, so you're talking about branching in oilseed grape. But you see the same effect no matter which, which the crop is in. Okay, brilliant. Um, and then on to spring inputs. Um, I guess maybe starting with nutrition. What was your nutrition programme for these crops? So we start the same again, and I think it's something that David alluded to in the room earlier. Um, we start again with a delta type product program that's to interact the cytokine and growth in there. We find that probably helps absorb nitrogen better out of the plant because if you've got a fibrous root mass already growing before you're applying your standard type of nitrogen, uh, you're always going to get better absorption by the fact that your roots are actually actively growing on those early applications. So we, we find that is a great way to help the nitrogen use efficiency in the plant. Obviously, later in the season, there are other, other products that help with that. But uh, in the early season, uh, we get it from the Delta and later season, the Revistar, Revisol type products are helping that nitrogen use efficiency to get the plant going. We then move into um, the T0 to the T3 timing. Uh, we're looking at using the tip top product to nutritionally motivate the plant going. So that's just a standard NPK product. Uh, get it up, get it biomassing up very quickly. Uh, and then using uh, some better, higher nutritional type 
uh, a fake product, so smart nutrition, we'd name it in the Bio Nature product, like an X stress product at the flag leaf timing, prolonging greening uh, by de-stressing the plant nutritionally, uh, lowering the ethylene production in there, and that stops the leaf roll, which is very, very relevant for this last season, stopping leaf roll. I know the fungicides helped in that, in the Revisil, my CSIRX type products as well, uh, but that it all helps to contribute. And finally, the, the one that we love is Calflux, uh, stopping the calcium degradation in the plant. Uh, it's a very fancy fruit product that we're using in the cereal industry, and that helps stop the calcium degradation in the top end of the leaf in the new growth. So when the plant comes under stress, the first thing it does is draw on calcium, and this stops the plant from uh, from drawing on the calcium source out of the actual leaves uh, or the or the flowering part of the plant, uh, and it just draws on the calflux element in there, the calcium element in the in the actual product. So that stops all that. Um, leaf burn, tip burn, uh, grain loss in, in the plant. And you mentioned the is it extras earlier that yes. helps to kind of mitigate yeah. So that, that that's helping to balance the the, the the translocation system and it's basically balancing up the ethanol production in the plant so they can help capture more sunlight for longer in the day. So most plants, as soon as that 25 degrees or above comes, it gets into leaf roll and it shuts down. The extras will just help that plant stop leaf rolling for longer. It won't stop it completely, but it holds that leaf for longer in the sunlight, capturing more sunlight there. Okay. And fungicides do the same. Like I, like I said, you know, the, the Mycea Cyrex type products or Pyroclostobrin, um, Exenium and uh, Revisol products do exactly the same. It's just helping balance those up and helping that plant just keep keep capturing more sunlight. And then in terms of um, like bagged nitrogen, how much went on there and in how many doses? So um, we've changed slightly on the nitrogen policies because of the drier springs that we've had the last three. The last three um, springs have been quite dry. Uh, so we've gone down to three splits, three even splits of um, about 70 kilos each time on the on the barleys. Uh, so 210 kilos in total, plus a, a, an odd bit of delta and tip top in there. So probably be at 212 in total. Uh, and on the wheats, um, we'd be 310 um, bagged type product of 34.5%, and then another four kilos of either delta K or tip top again in there. So 314 in total. Okay, brilliant. Um, and this might be one for you, David. Uh, moving on to fungicides, which diseases are you most wary of and what was the fungicide programme in this case? Okay, um, I think up here, um, in a wet season, we're always going to worry about septoria. Uh, as Tim's already alluded to, variety choice is going to be really important. So picking a variety that's uh, genetically strong against septoria is part of the, part of the process. Um, but being having a, having a good fungicide program on it is really important. Starting too early so you're not chasing, because once green leaf area has been lost, then it's lost for the season. You can never get it back. Um, and at the, towards the end of the season, um, brown rust is always, in this part of Lincolnshire, is always a feature. So it's important that the program is strong right to the end with brown rust in there. And as far as yellow rust, which is everybody's favourite disease at the moment, uh, the, the, the methodology is to have a variety that's good against yellow rust but make sure that we don't leave any doors open for it to creep in. Um, and then Tim, last season was obviously very dry, um, how did your crops cope with that and how did that kind of impact harvest date in comparison to um, you know, maybe some neighbouring farms and things like that? 
So harvest date for everybody, I think in in the whole of the country was earlier this year. Certainly in the in the um, England side, it definitely was a lot earlier than normal. But um, looking at harvesting dates, we were probably three to four days harvesting wise behind. But in terms of green leaf area retention, uh, the green leaf area on here was was at least two weeks, three weeks longer than most of the neighbours. Uh, so we saw an awful lot of sunlight capture in that, and it it shows up even if you just go on hectolitre weights. Um, I've never in my life seen 74 hectolitre weight winter barley, which you know is usually a winter wheat uh, hectolitre weight that's reasonable. Uh, and the champion, which is supposedly quite low in hectolitre weight, at 83.2 hectolitre weight, um, which is quite incredible when you're talking of 74, 75 off the list, and it's done an 83 hectolitre weight. So we've obviously done a cracking job of, of green leaf area retention. And, and even though the harvest date was the 10th of August for the champion, um, quite an incredible result with hectolitre weight. Excellent, thank you. Um, and if you weren't going for world record, what would you kind of do differently, um, you know, just in terms of more across the whole farm? So we use each field as a classification. So um, we have fields that are one in two steep. That's our steepest one. So that's quite incredible. It's not very much fun driving a combine up and down. In actual fact, some of the tram lines, we can't get up with it. Uh, so that field's never gonna do an 18 ton a hectare. It's only um, sort of 17, 16, 17 centimeters of, of topsoil on that at maximum. Uh, and then it's pure chalk rock underneath. Uh, so we'd look at that as being a 10 tonne a hectare wheat field, 7.5 tonne a hectare spring barley field and work the inputs back to that. So we wouldn't be throwing 314 kilo or even 210 kilos as in the winter barley programme, more like 110 to 120 kilos of nitrogen and work the fungicides and, and the BioNature programme, everything back in re retrospect to it so it doesn't um, outsource the actual income. Yeah, you mentioned har harvest index earlier. Um, what's your kind of approach um, on return on investment with various products? Um, so we're trying to we're trying to increase the gross margins by what we do with the higher higher input, higher output side. Uh, nitrogen obviously this year is very topical because it's been one price one post uh, pre Christmas and another price post Christmas. So uh, unfortunately, we've bought ours at quite expensive price. So it, it's a case of trying to make that work uh, and, and push the yields further by getting more nitrogen use efficiency, which we seem to be getting out of both the BioNature program and the um, Revisol, Revistar type programs. So I'm going to have to make the nitrogen work exceptionally hard again this year to keep the yields up. Yeah. And would you say that there's kind of one thing that you could really put down to your success last season or would you say it's just kind of a an accumulation of all the approaches that you're taking i think everybody would agree with the project no one thing in one season can attribute it to yield and i think that's what everybody's taking from the project including myself uh we we use a no stone unturned approach uh, which you'll probably see with some of the stuff we talk about and that's because we leave everything um under discussion and nothing set in stone in what we do we have a, a base idea and a base program but we try and react season to season so so last year was all about bigger root structures and prolonging greener greening uh, in the canopy longer but not one part of that program can be attributed to all those aspects okay brilliant um and a question for you david um for those listening that are not necessarily looking to break any world records, um, but they want to maximise their yield, what kind of takeaways do you think that they could get from Tim's approach to crop production? Um, I think 
probably the key to this is yeah not everybody's going to be able to achieve uh, 18 tons a hectare everybody wants to achieve a high yield than they've currently got and i think a lot of it comes down to attention to detail i think that's where tim wins on a regular basis that even when he's not breaking world records he's getting high yields and that's because his attention to detail is very pronounced. Now, not everybody's a Tim Lammyman, but there's plenty of people who, if they sat down for a short while and had a look at what they're doing, they could probably make a few adjustments. And it's it's all about minimal gains at the end of the day. You don't have to do any one big thing, but if you do lots of little things, and it adds half a tonne to your yield, even if you're at nine, you get to nine and a half tonnes, that's a big win. Um, and Tim, finally, I'll get um, just on the yen, this isn't your first world record. How many world records have you done now? You did have to ask that question off the cuff, <laughs> didn't you? Uh, I think it's roughly seven. Okay, not many then. <laughs> More than the average person. So how has yen helped you kind of push your yields and help you achieve these world records, would you say? So what I like about the Yield Enhancement Network is the, is the, is the data you get from it back so you get out of that what you put in so if you're prepared to in in the younger years when we're entering very early on we put all the data in right through the season so all the all the leaf tests all the nutritional data and when you get that back it identifies some of the areas where you may have made mistakes where you need to work harder on it uh, and it's sort of that learning you know the whole learning of that report so you get 100 different biometrics out of that report and if you're prepared to look at that 100 different biometrics and, and look at what's gone wrong in the sea sometimes you can learn it's the fungicide part of the program sometimes you learn it's the nutritional part of the program sometimes you learn there's probably nothing else you could have done um, in what you've done in that season other than concentrate on one or two minor minor things lately the last two or three reports are, are literally looking at um phosphorus deficiency in the grain was about the only thing they thought we could alter in the last three seasons on what we've been doing to it so we are getting better and better but we've used those reports to help us identify where we need to improve especially on the nutritional part of the programs um, and obviously uh, we've, we've been using all sorts of data to see on the green leaf area retention and, and how how long our crops are keeping greener but you know all those elements come come from fantastic reports like the yen report and and those biometrics in there are quite incredible really if you if you're prepared to you put the data in to start off with and then sit down and look at it at the end of the season that's great and do you think you'll go for a world record this harvest um currently we're not looking at any wheat and barley but you never know with all seed rape <laughs> watch this space thank you very much it's a pleasure And that's it for today. So even if you're not thinking of trying to break any world records anytime soon, I hope that there was plenty in today's episode you could take away. Thank you very much for tuning in. And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to click the subscribe button. See you next time.